Hey folks, JR, back for another episode of Echoes of Shannon Street Case File. Going to be episode 84, Microphone System. As you can tell by the title, we we are ceasing with the press conference. We're going to get back to the follow-up investigation. I didn't want to do enough about the press conference just so we could check in on the director and make sure he was providing accurate information about what was going on and which I thought it was very accurate based on what the follow-up investigation showed which we all know what that is because we got to go through it so we know he's being straight up on that it's just the beginning part uh, the why they didn't go in that just is really infuriating but Anyways, I don't want to get hung up on that again. I'll just get upset and stamp my feet and hold my breath. Okay, let's get back into this investigation and and see what the investigators are doing. And and just remember, a a lot of work goes in to these investigations. It doesn't end when the officers leave the scene. City of Memphis Interoffice Memorandum to Captain John Talley. OCSU date January 13, 1983 from Sergeant J.C. Kellum subject information in homicide investigation of police officer Robert Hester on 1-12-83 I received a call from Lieutenant Hank Thomas and he inquired as to whether we still had a power amplification type microphone system in our unit My gosh, such a long word to be used by a sergeant. You can tell this is a memo going to the higher-ups. I was guilty of the same thing. I always felt like I had to use big words. Anyways, he was advised that we did and that he would have to check with Captain Talley about the use of it. Approximately 20 minutes later, Lieutenant Thomas called back and stated that Captain Talley wanted me to meet him at Captain Talley's house to pick up this equipment and take it to the hostage negotiator's office, which was set up at Shannon School. Upon arriving at Shannon School at approximately 10.15 p.m., I was met by Lieutenant Thomas, who advised me that Inspector Fred Warner was in a briefing and would be with me in just a moment to tell what he would like to do with the microphone. Approximately 10.30 p.m., Inspector Warner advised me that they would like to get some type of electronic gear placed in or around the house in an effort to see if there was anyone still alive inside the building. He stated that there had been no sound or movement reported from inside since approximately 6 p.m. this date. He stated the primary thing they want to find out is whether there's anyone alive inside the building. I was escorted by tactical officers to a house, which was located on the east side of the house where the hostage was, and there I was shown an electronic-type bike with power booster that had been placed on the east wall of the house. After monitoring the mic, nothing could be heard. 
Members of the TAC unit then escorted me around to the other side of the house where Officer Gallo of the TAC unit showed me a bullet hole through a window located in the northwest corner of the building. Officer Gallo placed a microphone through this hole and we then laid line back to the first house on the west side of the hostage house. Now folks, that much talking about the, the west side of the hostage house, that's going to be the the side where if you remember Officer Parker, he was in that, that duplex watching the west side of the house. It's going to be that side of the house. After connecting the mic and line together, I monitored the sounds coming from this side of the building. First thing I heard was the voice of what sounded like a male black. This subject was talking in what I estimate to be the middle part of the house. He was making reference to God and the no-good motherfucking pigs. Conversation grew louder as he approached the area of the front room where the microphone was, and the subject continued to preach, rant, and rave in a disoriented manner. He then addressed his comments to someone else in the room, who I assumed to be the hostage, Officer Hester. The statement he made was that the lying pigs had started all this by accusing him of stealing a purse. He stated the pigs wanted him to cooperate with them, and he further stated that he was going to cooperate by giving them something back that they wanted badly, but they would not like the shape it was in when they got it back. He then directed more abusive language at what I assumed to be Officer Hester. This talk was to the effect that Officer Hester was going to die and all the pigs outside the house were going to die. He moved away from the front of the house, continuing to talk incoherently, and the sound of a toilet flushing could be heard. Short time later, this male black, whose voice sounded to me the same as the voice I had heard on the police radio the night before and belonged to Lindbergh Sanders, again grew louder as he once again came into the front of the house. Lieutenant Thomas was contacted by telephone and advised that we were picking up voices from inside the house, and he in turn passed this information on to Inspector Warner. As we continued to monitor, I could detect a different sounding voice, deeper in tone and more mellow than Sanders' voice. I asked if any of the TAC officers could recognize Officer Hester's voice. One of them, who I was unable to identify in the darkness, listened to the conversation for a short time and stated this was not Hester's voice, and to him it sounded like two male blacks conversing. Short time later, Lieutenant Thomas came to the house and monitored some of this conversation. Hostage negotiations had started again, with negotiators using the bullhorn to talk to the Sanders subject. Sanders was responding to the bullhorn, but in a detached manner. 
he made the statement that the lion pigs are always wanting me to do something. He continued to ramble and stated that he was no fool. He knew they were going to throw some gas on him, but that he could take care of that too, and that his water was still on and he could wash the gas off himself. During this period of time, he became more and more agitated and a clicking sound similar to the cocking and uncocking of a handgun was very distinct. The subject gradually grew quiet, but I could still hear heavy coughing and then a subject throwing up violently. The toilet was heard to flush two more times. It was at this point the hostage negotiator began talking on the bullhorn again, and Lieutenant Thomas asked to monitor the listening device to see what type of reaction this was getting from Sanders. After a few minutes, Lieutenant Thomas made the statement that it didn't sound too good, that Sanders had just stated something to the effect that his father was dead and his brother was dead and the devil was dead. Lieutenant Tucson arrived at the house, and I remember Lieutenant Tucson is uh, over security squad. Anyways, Lieutenant Tucson arrived at the house at this time with another piece of electronic equipment. We hooked our equipment into the unit that Lieutenant Tucson had and still maintained good quality sound. This unit was then moved back across the street to Shannon School and set up in the hostage negotiation office where the sounds could be recorded and reviewed by officers in charge. In conclusion, I can state that I personally heard two different subjects speaking. Both these subjects were male blacks. I never heard anyone that I could identify as Officer Hester speaking, and I felt that at the time I was monitoring the two male blacks' conversation, that there was a great possibility that Officer Hester was critically injured or possibly dead. City of Memphis Interoffice Memorandum to Security Squad Date 8301.13. So that's January 13, 1983. And this is from Winky Downing and Ed Vidlage, Car 121. Subject information regarding 2239 Shannon Instant. Oh, and by the way, folks, if you're ever going to type a memo, please don't use all caps. It's very hard to read and understand. On 112.83 at approximately 1900 hours, Patrolman Vidlage received information from Patrolman Billy Tucker, North Precinct Desk, to meet a confidential informant I think that's number six. Anyways, I'm not for sure of that number, but that's that's a firehouse. I believe that's on Danny Thomas, just north of Chelsea, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, regarding information on the 2239 Shannon incident, Officer Vidlage and Downing met this informant whose name is available, and he advised us that he had been in an apartment in Hurt Village and that a party at that location was talking about being on the scene on Shannon and that he got out during the shooting before the house could be secured by officers in the area. I'm sorry, officers in the rear. 
This information went from officers back to the command post where he was he was interviewed by officers from the security squad. This informant has given true and correct information to officers in the past and was determined through this information that at least three male blacks escaped from the house shortly after the incident began. began. Officers in car 121 took the informant to the Hurt Village complex where he pointed out 620 North 7th, and that looks like apartment B, and advised that he had been in the apartment that morning and overheard a conversation between a male black he knew only as T.C. and his mother. He stated that T.C. was at the house on Shannon and that he got out the back when the shooting started. I don't know exactly what that is. He held himself in the hip area. Maybe that's hurt him, hurt himself in the hip area. And if he was injured, he also stated that TC stated that he was going to see a doctor, but he could not determine his injuries. He described this male black as being about six foot eight. Wow. Six foot eight, skinny, build, dark complexion, and then he is usually armed with a silver snub nose thirty eight pistol. He states that this male black also said that Pete and Harry also got out with him and that Harry had possibly left town. The informant then pointed out six twenty seven Thomas that looks like apartment I and stated that the male black Pete lived at that address. He described Pete as being about 30 years of age, 5 foot 8, 160 pounds, regular build, light complected, and he believes the male black has a beard. He also pointed out 630 North 7th, apartment A, stated that Harry lived there and that he had a heavy-set brother who was also a member of the religious cult. It was later determined that the male black named Harry was possibly Michael Coleman, and that he did not escape from the house, and that the heavy-set brother was Timothy Coleman. Officers at this point released the informant and returned to Thomas and Chelsea, where Lieutenant... W.P. Oldham, car 105, Lieutenant J.J. Rogers, car 106, and Patrolman C.E. Coaston and C.I. Woodruff, car 122, were standing by at approximately, looks like, 2,000 hours. The listed cars along with 121 went to the 620 North 7th, number B, to attempt to pick up this male black TC, Lieutenant Rogers, car 122, took the back door. And Lieutenant Oldham, car 121, took the front. After knocking on the front door, we were met by a female black and a small child and advised her that we were looking for TC. While talking to this female black who identified herself as TC's wife, T.C. came to the front door 
and he was advised that he was under arrest and placed on the wall in front of the apartment where officers advised him of his rights. And he made a spontaneous statement to officers that he was in the house on Shannon, but he got out when the shooting started, and he hurt himself getting out of the house. He was arrested without incident and was transported by car 122 to the security squad office. Female Black was also taken to the security squad office for a statement. Because of the closeness of the address, Oldham stayed with TC. That's Lieutenant Oldham. Oh, before I get off this page, folks, just, just by the by, I know you've seen a lot of police shows and stuff, but as an investigator, I can tell you, I don't want uniformed officers reading suspects their rights. And if you're in uniform patrol or want to be in uniform patrol for a police department, if you've arrested somebody and you know it's going to be handled by the investigators, you don't talk to the suspect and you don't read him his rights. That's what the investigator will do, not you. Smith in 122's car. While the remaining officers with Lieutenant Rogers went to 627 Thomas, Apartment I, at 2014 hours in an attempt to pick up the male black known as Pete. Lieutenant Rogers, Patrolman Woodruff, and Vidledge took the front door and Patrolman Colston and Downing took the rear door. Officers in the front were met by a female black who identified herself as Pete's wife. She stated that he was not here and consented to officers to search the apartment for the suspect. She was taken to security squad office along with a male black, Ricky Tucker, who was also at that address. He gave us a DOB of 92262 and an address on Pierce. And then that's all this memo's got on it. All right, folks, that's going to wrap up this episode. It's good to get back into the investigation. See what else gets uncovered. If y'all remember, the, we went over the informant's statement in one of the earlier episodes. And even then, I had made sure his name was blacked out. Because you want to always protect your informant, no matter how many years it's been. All right, folks, I appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in. We will get back. We'll get back together, if I can speak. Till then, I'll see you down the road.